This is episode number 54, Mastering Diabetes with a Plant-Based Diet. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, nutrition, and inspiring stories from people around the globe. Just because our pancreas stopped working and it's not producing insulin doesn't mean that we now need to eat a different way for the health of our heart, for the health of our lungs, for the health of our eyes, our brain. Nothing changed in those organs. So why would you stop eating the foods that we know that are healthy for those organs? It just doesn't make sense. So that's my spiel on the low carb confusion. If you're new to my show, my name is Sonia Looney and I'm a professional mountain bike racer and I also follow eating a plant-based diet. I've been eating a whole foods plant-based diet for about five years now and have found the best performance of my life after changing my diet and also the best health. I even won a world championship title for 24 hour racing eating a plant-based diet. So you can definitely do a lot of things. And part of the show is talking about how to live a high performance life eating a plant-based diet. And plant-based diets also are very, very effective for preventing and reversing diseases. And it's a huge epidemic. There's a lot of things happening, a lot of different diseases that we're afraid of and that people get on a daily basis. And Losing control or feeling like you're not in control of your diseases and symptoms of those diseases is scary. So one of the the main reasons that I changed my diet was because I wanted to be in as much control as possible so that I wouldn't come down with cardiovascular disease or cancer or a lot of the other bad things that kill us like Parkinson's disease, diabetes. Just because you're an athlete doesn't mean that you get a free pass that you're going to be healthy exercise is just one part of it. So eating a healthy diet is super important. And I just really want to make sure that there's information out there so that we can eat more plants, we can do the best that we can in our daily lives to just be healthier and to live longer. Today's show is about diabetes. And all of us know somebody that has diabetes or pre-diabetes. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe you think you're destined to get it. And that's not the case. There's a lot that you can do, even if you already have diabetes. So if you know somebody with diabetes, make sure that you share the show with them. This could be really impactful in their lives. What if you could do something about diabetes and even reverse it? There have been many, many real-life stories of people switching to a low-fat, plant-based diet and seeing incredible results, not only with type 2 diabetes, but also with type 1 and type 1.5, and we talk about that in the show. Weight loss is one strategy for managing diabetes, and plant-based diets are nutrient-dense without packing on excessive, unhealthy calories. That means you don't have to eat small portions if you're eating whole foods and plant-based meals. Also, the studies show that a diet high in carbohydrates, as long as they are whole foods and not from refined sources, help with diabetes as well. And that might come as a surprise to you because a lot of diabetics think that carbohydrates are evil, and that's just not the case. Interestingly enough, cardiovascular disease is what kills most diabetics, just like everybody else, and plant-based diets are highly effective at preventing and reversing heart disease as well and promoting overall better health and longevity. Today's guests are awesome. Cyrus Kambada, PhD, and Robbie Barbero are the founders of MasteringDiabetes.org. 
They offer a successful coaching program for people with all forms of diabetes, including pre-diabetes, to help insulin sensitivity, to get your best A1C, and improve overall health and longevity. As athletes themselves, both living with type 1 diabetes, they have scoured through 85-plus years of research and are experts in this field. They also have a closed Facebook group as part of their online coaching practice. I love their website because it's jam-packed with information and even recipes to get you started. My friend and former podcast guest Brenda Davis recommended them to me. Brenda is one of the world's leading dietitians, specifically in plant-based diet and treating diabetes. So I definitely look up to her and am always going to her for recommendations. And these guys come highly recommended from Brenda Davis. In the show today, we talk about Robbie and Cyrus's individual stories of how they were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and how they both found plant-based diets. We talk about diabetes in general. Maybe it's a black cloud and you're not really understanding what it is. So they explain all you need to know about diabetes. They talk about does a keto diet help with diabetes and how carbohydrates play a role in actually preventing and reversing diabetes. Talk about diet strategies, their coaching program, and how exercise helps with diabetes as well. The key here is not to just listen to this, but to take action. If you or someone you know has diabetes, go to the masteringdiabetes.org website and get started. There's a button that says start here and just try it. I mean, it's worth seeing what would happen. And there's so many different success stories on their site. And what if you could make your life different? What if you could change your life by just tweaking your diet? So definitely check it out. Big props to our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. And I want to say this, guys. It's really interesting. Whenever you get the Kuat Racks in the box, the box is actually designed to help you build the rack. So there's a little bit of assembly required, and it's not hard. But the box has been engineered so that you don't have to have parts everywhere. You're not awkwardly trying to screw things in. And it was really cool to see that they actually planned it right down to the box. With the Sherpa rack that I have on the back of my car, I can actually still see out the backup camera. With some of the bigger racks, it's harder to actually see what's behind you. And I really like that feature as well. And it also has three different pivot points so that you don't have to take your bikes off if you really want to open up the back of the car. You can pivot the bikes up and down. So that's pretty cool as well. So go to kuatracks.com, check out all their racks. They're the best racks that I've used. And I'm really stoked that they are sponsoring the show because I'm a fan of the brand. I want to invite you guys on the ultimate mountain bike vacation with me. It's called the Sonia Looney Experience, and it's in Bend, Oregon, October 4th through the 7th. Spots are limited, but it's going to be awesome. We're going to be doing three days of guided rides. All ability levels are welcome, and we take care of everything. All you have to do is show up. Hotel, food, rides, speaking, yoga, brewery tours, everything is included. So go over to my website, sonyalooney.com and click retreats and you can sign up there. And I hope to see you guys there in October. And last, thanks you guys for rocking my socks, the Moxie and Grit socks, moxieandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y and grit.com. It's been a journey designing my own products and just creating a brand. And it's really cool to see you guys enjoying them. And I really appreciate it whenever you share it with your friends and whenever you guys post on social media, because it's just awesome. It's fun. 
I got some new designs coming out for summer as well. So stay tuned on there and check out Moxie and Grit on Instagram. So, all right, let's get into it today with Robbie and Cyrus. I think that you're really going to enjoy today's show and learn a lot and also be able to make an impact in your life and in the lives around you. So here they are. Cyrus and I, we were both doing private coaching. I went to school at the University of Florida. And Cyrus and I were both living with diabetes. And when I graduated school, I went straight out to California. This is 2010 that I came out here. Mm-hmm. And I started working at Forks Over Knives and had a, just so much fun there, good times. And while I was there, I started a coaching practice. I started, you know, sharing things on Instagram and making YouTube videos and offering coaching for people. And had you changed your diet at this point? Yeah. So I changed my diet much earlier when I was in high school or so, even a little bit before then I started changing my diet and eating better. And eventually I had come across a low fat plant-based whole food diet after I had tried a low carbohydrate meat-based diet from the Weston A. Price Foundation. And then I also tried a low carbohydrate plant-based diet where I learned from Dr. Gabriel Cousins and was doing a a plant-based keto diet, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially. And after you know not getting the results I was looking for on um, that diet, I found Doug Graham and the book, The 80-10-10 Diet, and I started eating nothing but fruits and vegetables. So that was in December of 2006. And I just got incredible results. I started feeling much better. My insulin sensitivity was through the roof. It was better than it had ever been. I couldn't believe how much bananas I was eating, how much I was eating watermelon, cantaloupe, grapes. I was eating all these fruits. And the amount of insulin I needed to keep my blood glucose under control was so much less than I had assumed I was going to need. And uh, it was great. So yeah, I changed my diet. And then I was working at Forks Over Knives. Then I was doing this on the side. And at the same time, Cyrus, was he was coaching. He had developed his own coaching practice, very successful, Mango Man Nutrition and Fitness. And we eventually decided to join forces. And for a while, we did some retreats together. We had some online coaching where it was kind of like both of our companies. There was Mastering Diabetes didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then in January 1st, 2017, that is, was basically the first day of Mastering Diabetes as a company existing. And we decided that, hey, if we like, work together and have one operation here, that we can have a huge impact. And together, we can succeed a lot more than apart. And that was the beginning of Mastering Diabetes. And we, we did a, a summit that year and where we interviewed the leading experts. We interviewed Dean Ornish, Michael Greger, Matt Letterman from Forks Over Knives, Joel Furman, Rob Osfeld, Joel Kahn, just a lot of the leaders in the plant-based world and beyond. And that sort of helped launch Mastering Diabetes. And now here we are about a year and a half later or so. And uh, just loving every minute of it. That's so cool. So it sounds like you had type one diabetes because you had it as at a young age. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Both Cyrus and I are living with type one diabetes. So I was diagnosed when I was twelve, just about to turn thirteen, and I'm thirty now. So I've lived with it for over eighteen years. Uh huh. Cyrus, what about you? Yeah. So I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was twenty-two. So physicians generally think of type one diabetes as they called it juvenile onset diabetes. And that's the name that sort of has been around for the past 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And it's typically just because kids get it when they're young. You know, you can get it when you're one or when you're five or when you're eight. 
But over the course of time, the type 1 diabetes population has shifted to older and older ages. And there's actually some research now that shows that for the first time in human history, there are more people developing type 1 diabetes, like as a proportion of the population, there's just more people with type 1 diabetes than there ever has been. And in addition to that, people are getting it in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and all the way up into their 60s. Wow. And wow. so I'm a perfect example of someone who got it when I was 22, which is late for type 1 diabetes, but I'm actually very fortunate that I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at what I consider to be a young age because it was the catalyst. It was the reason why I stopped everything that I was doing and I said, wait a minute, I want to learn something about nutrition because I don't think I'm eating properly and I bet you if I changed the way that I eat, I could at least control type 1 diabetes with a greater level of precision. And just like Robbie, you know, I migrated towards a plant-based diet, made a ton of changes, dropped my fat intake, significantly increased my whole carbohydrate intake. And, you know, it made a massive, massive difference in the way that I feel in my ability to perform athletics and, you know, push my body to the limits six days a week. But then also in controlling my blood glucose and making sure that, you know, my blood glucose stays within a normal range 80, 90% of the time and that I know exactly how much insulin to give myself to prevent from going either high or too low. Yeah, so when you guys change your diet, you mentioned that you have better, I think you said better insulin sensitivity. So does that mean you don't have to give yourself as much? Yeah, so the way to think about insulin sensitivity is most people in the world of diabetes are sort of, they pay attention to like one variable. And the one variable that they pay attention to is how much carbohydrate are you eating? And they sort of fixate on like, well, you know, this is how many carbs I ate for lunch and for dinner. And I'm, as a result of that, their overall strategy is to try and limit the number of carbohydrate grams that they eat per day because that's a way to limit their insulin use mm -hmm. and to keep your blood glucose nice and controllable. Right? And it works. It works brilliantly. And so when you decrease your carbohydrate intake, you end up eating more protein and more fat. Whether that comes from animal-based products or whether that comes from plant-based products, it doesn't matter. What matters is that your carbohydrate intake is very low. But insulin sensitivity is, it takes multiple variables into consideration. The first one is your total carbohydrate intake, but your second one is your total insulin use. And so put plainly, put very simply, insulin sensitivity is the ratio of your total carbohydrate intake in a 24-hour period divided by your total insulin exposure or your total insulin use in that same 24-hour period. And so when you start to calculate this ratio of carbohydrate divided by insulin, then and only then will you start to understand that eating a plant-based diet makes it so that the top part of that fraction, your total carbohydrate intake, can go up while the bottom part of that fraction, your insulin use, can go down. And the two of them go in opposite directions, and that's where the whole process becomes really fascinating because as a result of becoming more insulin sensitive, you drop your risk for all chronic diseases, whether they're, it's heart disease, hypertension, high cholesterol, kidney failure, retinopathy, neuropathy, you name it. Tissues around your body absolutely love it when you are insulin sensitive. And that's why eating a low-fat plant-based whole food diet is just such an incredible tool for people living with all forms of diabetes. So can you guys explain to people, because you just mentioned eating low carbs helps, but then you just said, well, if you increase your carbohydrate intake on a plant-based diet, 
it actually gives you even better improvement. So why is it that eating carbohydrate sources and protein sources from plants makes it better? I'll share a little bit of insight here and then I'll let Cyrus add in more of the traditional biochemistry component because this truly is is a very confusing topic and it's hard for people to wrap their head around. I'm still trying my best to explain it because people are still confused. Okay, so I'm just going to share my own personal experience. As people living with type 1 diabetes, we have a lot of data. We know exactly how much insulin we're having to inject in our body. Like we know that number. We calculate our total carbohydrate intake and we calculate our fat intake. We calculate all that. Those people who know that that's important. And we also test our blood glucose. So mainly, the mainly three factors there is the, the insulin we're using, the carbohydrate we're consuming, and our blood glucose. Okay, so type ones, great people to sort of learn what's going on. You can sort of apply that to people who aren't living with type one. So while I was doing the low carbohydrate, you know, the sort of ketogenic plant-based version, avoiding carbs to like having no more than 30 grams of carbs per day, I had very steady blood glucose, and I also required the least amount of insulin. The total insulin I had to inject was the lowest it had it's ever been. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the reason is is because I simply wasn't eating carbohydrates. That's the primary reason. Okay. So insulin's main function is to take glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. That's its primary function. So now, as a person following a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, I take more total insulin, but Again, it's the amount that my pancreas would have normally secreted, okay? So your pancreas secretes insulin. It's natural, it's normal, it's necessary. It secretes a healthy amount. So as a person living with type 1, your pancreas is damaged, then we're not producing our own. We simply want to inject whatever it would have normally produced on its own, what we were producing prior to getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And that's the goal you want for everybody else out there, whether living with type 2, you want that as well, or prediabetes. So... The confusion comes in, especially in the type one community, is like they're saying, look, the less insulin I take, isn't that better? And having my blood glucose flat, like not eating carbohydrates and having it go up a little bit and then going down, like, wouldn't it be better just to have this flat blood glucose? So there was just an article published in the New York Times about this. And there's a whole community and they're showcasing this and how they are following this very low carb diet. They have very low A1Cs. Their blood glucose line on a continuous glucose monitor is flat. And everybody's thinking, oh, wow, this is great. Like, this is the solution. This is the best thing for type 1 diabetes. And the thing that they're missing is that, number one, they're still insulin resistant. So for me, when I was eating 30 grams of carbohydrate and taking about 10 units of total insulin through the day, that's a 3 to 1 ratio. And now I'm eating upwards of 700 grams of carbohydrates, sometimes 800, 900, and then injecting roughly like 38 units of insulin. You do the math, it becomes somewhere around a 20 to one ratio on the insulin set. So that's a big difference. And Cyrus was talking earlier about how, why insulin sensitivity matters. So you want to show that you're insulin sensitive. And again, just controlling your blood glucose is not the holy grail here when you're people living with diabetes, particularly type one, because we don't die of high blood glucose. The number one killer of people living with diabetes, whether it's type one or type two is heart disease. Okay. People Hmm. living with diabetes die of other conditions, not a high blood glucose. Not, I'm not sitting here saying you should, you should have high blood glucose and that doesn't matter. But the point (laughs) is, is that 
just because you've controlled blood glucose doesn't mean you solved the solution in the bigger picture. And so one example, we've heard this in our summit, there's several different ways to explain this, but you know, one of the ones that always resonates with me is if you're a bad driver, let's say you get a lot of speeding tickets and you get in a lot of car crashes, okay? You're just a bad driver. And somebody takes away your license, you cannot drive anymore. That is a great way that then you're gonna fix your record. Like you don't get in crashes anymore and you don't get speeding tickets. Would you say that you solved the problem? Not really. So that is what the low carbohydrate community is doing. They're just taking away the driver's license. They're taking away the carbohydrates and saying, we solved the problem. Mm -hmm. Whereas that's not, we're saying, well, we're going to teach you how to drive. We're going to teach you how to become insulin sensitive, how to eat the foods that are healthy, to eat the foods that prevent and reverse chronic diseases so that you can be healthy and you can eat these foods and become insulin sensitive. So that's the major thing that we're doing. And, and I, another point I'd like to add here is that in the thing that the diabetes community, I think, is missing, and it's sad, and we want to solve this, is that especially for type 1s, it applies to everybody, but particularly the type 1 community, if just because our pancreas stopped working and it's not producing insulin doesn't mean that we now need to eat a different way for the health of our heart, for the health of our lungs, for the health of our eyes, our brain. Nothing changed in those organs. So why would you stop eating the foods that we know that are healthy for those organs? It just doesn't make sense. So that's my spiel on the, the low-carb confusion. Cyrus, I'm sure, can add some stuff. He nailed it. So one thing that I want to elaborate here on is that people in the world of diabetes make the assumption that insulin is the enemy. And so if you've been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes like Robbie and myself and you just don't manufacture insulin on board, then it's very easy to succumb to this mentality that your entire objective is to limit the amount of insulin that you inject. So rather than injecting 35 units a day, your goal is to inject nine or 10. Just get it down to the, the bare minimum, right? And then for people living with type 2 diabetes, some people end up taking insulin over the course of time because their doctors prescribe it for them, and it's because it's nothing else seems to have worked in controlling their blood glucose. And so for those people as well, they believe, well, insulin is the enemy. I got to get off of this stuff, right? So if, as long as you operate under this mentality that insulin is the enemy, and insulin will eventually kill me, and insulin is a pharmaceutical medication, and it's a drug, and drugs are bad, then you are likely to follow a low-carbohydrate diet because that's the easiest way to get to a minimum amount of insulin use per day. But in so doing, what ends up happening, just like Robbie was saying, is that you end up developing chronic diseases that are probably going to cause more problems for you in the long term than diabetes would have caused. So if you eat a low-carbohydrate diet, there is plenty of peer-reviewed evidence. And I'm happy to give all of the references here that shows that the more fat and protein-rich foods you eat, especially if those foods come from animal-based sources, the higher your risk for cardiovascular disease, for hypertension, for high cholesterol, for Alzheimer's disease, which is basically you know, vascular complications of your brain, increases your risk for cancer, it increases your risk for peripheral neuropathy, et cetera, et cetera, even for um, many autoimmune conditions as well. And so if you start eating a low-carbohydrate diet because you make the assumption that insulin is bad for you, as opposed to being a required biological hormone, which is re absolutely required for life, 
then you're led down the low carbohydrate path. And as soon as you go down that path, you can control your blood glucose very well, but it ends up creating other problems that are likely to become much bigger problems in the future. That makes sense? Yeah. And uh, I just want to note that outside of diabetes, the people who are eating a keto diet just to lose weight, like you actually might be losing weight, but you also need to really think about what these long-term implications are to your body. Like you might look good in the short term, but what are you doing to yourself in the long term? And just to make sure that you've actually spent the time to do your own research and make sure that what you're doing is the right thing. Yeah. And I always love to add to that. You, we see there's definitely all these blog posts, there's articles of these people that have these amazing turnarounds on a ketogenic diet. And I always say like, you could also get those the same results, but actually eat really healthy, nourishing foods, eat a larger volume of them. A lot of these, you can eat as much as you want. Like you get to choose which path do you want to achieve these amazing results? And then which one has the long-term results, which one has societies that have lived this way for a long time. You know, it's just, once somebody gets information, it's kind of a no brainer, but it's sad to see that people don't, the confusion, the people are still out there writing that fruit is like bad and can't have potatoes. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's hard because there is so much information out there and it's so hard to know what to believe and how do you even know if a study is not tainted and actually viable. Like it's really confusing for people. But I think that trial and error is a really great way to test things out and not just trial. Did I lose weight? But trial like, OK, let's look under the hood and see how things are actually doing in my body once I start eating a certain way, because people thought the Atkins diet was healthy and they were losing weight and feeling good. But like, that's not good for you either. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I want to add to that, too, is that if you were to do like there's plenty of peer reviewed evidence that shows that you can put someone on a ketogenic diet or you put groups of people on a ketogenic diet and then over the course of the first three months or six months, you see tremendous improvements in many biomarkers. Just like you said, you see lots of weight loss. You can see reduced blood pressure, reduced cholesterol levels, reduced blood glucose variability, reduced A1C levels, and the list goes on. So if you focus on the short term and say, what's going to happen to me over the first three to six months, then great. You're probably going to end up with a really good outcome. But if you then follow up with those people five years down the road or 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road, that's where you see completely different scenarios. So in the short term, it's like these low carbohydrate diet and ketogenic diets, they trick people and medical professionals into believing that it's a good strategy for the long term. But in the long term, if you fast forward and take a look at those same biomarkers, weight loss has not only stopped, it's actually gone back up again. So, you know, you end up plateauing and then most people end up putting the weight back on and sometimes even weighing more than they did originally. Hypertension through the roof. High cholesterol through the roof. LDL concentrations go way up. Increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. Increased risk for peripheral neuropathy. Increased risk for kidney damage. Increased risk for fatty liver. And so it becomes a huge problem, but it's just hard to see that problem until enough time has passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to take it back to the diabetes specific questions, because I think that unless you yourself or a family member or a friend has been affected by diabetes, you probably don't know a whole lot about it. So I'd like to have you guys define type one and type two, but I also saw on your website type 1.5, which I'm actually not even familiar with. So I think it'd be really helpful just to, to define that before we move forward. For sure. All right. So there's many different flavors of diabetes. To put it simply, majority of the world population suffers from type two diabetes. 
Okay, so type two diabetes is what's considered a lifestyle disease, and what that means is that over the course of time, your lifestyle, your dietary habits, and your exercise patterns or lack thereof have created this thing that we now refer to as type two diabetes. The other, you know, eight to ten percent of the population lives with type 1 diabetes. And type 1 diabetes is generally considered juvenile onset, even though that's not necessarily true anymore. But it's an autoimmune condition that actually ends up destroying the insulin-producing beta cells in your pancreas. Okay, So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition, and you can get tested for very specific antibodies that demonstrate that your own immune system has attacked the beta cells inside of your pancreas and rendered them incapable of making any insulin. So as a result of that, you now have to take over the role of what your pancreas would have done if it was functioning. Type 2 diabetes does not necessarily result from that same process. Type 2 diabetes is not autoimmune, so your immune system is not the one that's actually causing the problem. What, what ends up happening is that you eat yourself into a precursor condition, and that precursor condition is called insulin resistance. So you develop insulin resistance generally by eating a high fat and or high protein diet over the course of many months to many years. So when you become insulin resistant, then your muscle and your liver in particular have a very difficult time absorbing glucose. So you eat a high fat diet, whether that's got comes from dairy products or from meat, from white meat, from red meat, from fish, from chicken, from eggs, you name it. And over the course of time, your muscles become insulin resistant and your liver does too. Then the next time you go eat a banana or a bowl of quinoa or some rice or maybe you know some bread, the glucose that's inside of those carbohydrate molecules cannot get access to your muscle and cannot get access to your liver where, where that glucose belongs because those tissues have lost their ability to communicate with insulin. So think of insulin as basically being this gatekeeper that allows glucose to get inside. It goes and knocks on the door of tissues and says, hey, knock, knock, I got some glucose, do you want to take it up? And under normal situation, normal circumstances, both of these tissues are like, sure, great, have that glucose come inside. And so it leaves your blood and gets inside of the tissues. But when you develop insulin resistance from eating a high fat diet over time, then the next time insulin says, knock, knock, I have some glucose, do you want to take it up? These tissues say, there's no way. I can't take this stuff up. I don't have any space. Do you see all this, this fatty acids that I've accumulated over time? I got way too much of this stuff. I don't want any more energy. Go away. And so as a result of that, insulin stays trapped in your blood. Glucose stays trapped in your blood. And then the next time you go check your blood glucose, you see a high number and you say, huh, I guess the banana was the problem. I guess I can't eat carbohydrate. I can't eat quinoa because I did. And then my blood glucose went high. So I guess that's the problem. But in reality, it's everything that you did before eating that carbohydrate-based meal, insulin resistance, and then set the stage for high blood glucose. So again, of the people living with diabetes on this planet, 90% of them are living with type 2 diabetes that's caused by insulin resistance. And on your way to developing type 2 diabetes, there is an intermediary type of diabetes called pre-diabetes, which is like warning sign. You know, it's like, you can show an elevated blood glucose before you get to full-blown type 2 diabetes. And then finally, like you said, type 1.5. Think of type 1.5 as basically being type 1 diabetes that affects adults over the age of 30 
and it's a weak autoimmune progression. So what that means is that people who develop type 1 diabetes, like Ravi and myself, we end up getting to a point where we have, we're fully insulin dependent. And that usually happens within a span of 12 to 18 months. People living with type 1.5 diabetes who end up developing the slow onset adult version of type 1 diabetes, it may take them five years, 10 years, 20 years to get to a point where they need, where they're fully insulin dependent. And so it's basically just like a slowed down version that affects adults over the age of 30. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to ask you guys, because a lot of times with type 2 diabetes, you just hear that all the people with type 2 diabetes are people who are really overweight. And I don't know if that's a fact. So you can correct me if I'm wrong with that. And that the solution is just to lose weight. And like, that's what it appears to me that people are doing. Is that right? So this what's interesting is in our coaching practice, we have a, an online coaching practice. We have a lot of people coming through our practice. And the number of times that we see people that have been sort of misdiagnosed, like a lot of times these medical professionals are not familiar with type 1.5. And you see a lot of people coming in that are thin and think that they've been diagnosed as type 2. But really, when we do some research on it and have them get some tests, we can figure out that most of them are actually living with more like type 1.5 diabetes. So in general, yes, those living with type 2 diabetes, they are mostly they're overweight in a vast majority of cases. And losing weight in many cases can solve the problem. But Again, so you could do it the keto way. You, you, there are so many people. They have truly, you can see testimonials online. People have truly reversed their type 2 diabetes during a ketogenic diet. They lost weight. They get off medications. Their A1C is good. Like They technically, in regards to what their A1C is, you could say have reversed diabetes. But what we're educating people about is that, no, they are still insulin resistant. So I, mean, I hate to bring it back to this point that we already hammered home, but it's so confusing for people. So yeah, you just lose weight, all of a sudden things get better. But in those cases, if they sit down and try and eat a banana or two, or they eat a, a potato or a, a, you know, a couple of beans or something, their blood glucose spikes because they can, they live, they're insulin resistant. They cannot tolerate the glucose in these foods. And so that point, in that case, we're telling people, no, you have not solved the problem. You've just, you have a Band-Aid solution. So I hope that makes sense. Cyrus, you can add some stuff here. Yeah, I mean, everything you said is factually correct. The one thing that I would add to that is that, yeah, the bulk of the type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes population is by anywhere from 10 pounds to 200 pounds. However, it's not necessary in order to develop pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. You can show up to your doctor's office. You could be totally normal weight. You could be cut. You could have really good muscle definition. You could be an athlete. And you can still present with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes because prediabetes and type 2 diabetes are collections of symptoms that happen as a result of insulin resistance in your muscle and liver, like we talked about earlier, but also as a result of damaged blood vessels. So if your internal metabolic state is you know, clogged with cholesterol in your arteries and clogged with triglycerides inside of your, inside of your blood, your muscle, and your liver then that's the perfect storm. You can develop type 2 diabetes very easily without putting on any excess weight. So can you reverse type 2 diabetes completely with a plant-based diet? It's funny. If you go ask doctors, most doctors will do not believe that full reversal of type 2 diabetes is even possible. 
And it's not because doctors are dumb. It's not because they're unintelligent. It's not because they didn't read properly. They're phenomenal people and they're very good at what they do. It's that the curriculum that they followed back in graduate school told them and taught them that type 2 diabetes is not a fully reversible condition. So they operate under that uh, mindset. However, modern medicine has actually shown over and over and over again, especially lifestyle medicine, that type 2 diabetes not only is reversible, but it's reversible in the vast majority of cases. And what's required in order to reverse type 2 diabetes? Well, the a full-blown reversal of type 2 diabetes, because insulin resistance is what causes it, you have to reverse insulin resistance, period, end of story. Mm-hmm. So until you fully reverse type 2 diabetes, you can't claim that your risk for developing type 2 diabetes is gone. And again, the way that we do it is by dropping your total fat intake, because that's the number one most influential variable in insulin resistance. But number two, you also got to attain an ideal body weight and do it by eating a predominantly plant-based diet, if not fully plant-based diet. So to answer your question, yes, it's a totally reversible condition in more than 80% of all cases. The other 20% of people will you know, end up needing some form of oral medication or insulin because they've accumulated enough damage over the course of time that it's not fully reversible at that point. Yeah, that's an important point, something we like to talk about and something that we've helped a lot of people with in our coaching program. So the bottom line is if somebody is living with type 2 diabetes for a long enough time that they have exhausted their pancreas, so they're trying to produce more and more insulin to compensate for their level of insulin resistance, at some point, the pancreas gets burned out and beta cells start to not work properly. And not because there's anything attacking the beta cells or any anything killing them, it's just because they just got burnt out. It's different than what's happening in type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes. So in those cases, some people, they become a insulin-dependent, living with insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. And that's okay. If that's the reality of the situation, adding a little bit of insulin there, in addition to whatever your pancreas is still producing, to get to whatever that healthy level is supposed to be, is totally okay. And those people can live healthy, happy lives. And so a lot of people, you know, we ask them to get what's called a C-peptide test. A C-peptide test will show basically your level of insulin production of your pancreas. And so if somebody's producing excess, if they get a C-peptide test and their number is high, like their pancreas is still able to work in overdrive, that person can absolutely reverse their type 2 diabetes. And the majority of people are in that situation. So you can objectively get some data and help set some goals for yourself by getting a C-peptide test. Okay. And will eating a whole foods, plant-based, low-fat diet also stop the progression of type 1.5 diabetes? It's a great question. According to modern medicine, we do not know how to solve type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes. Because again, these are autoimmune reactions that were caused by any collection of environmental problems. So the first thing could be consumption of casein, too much casein at a young age, casein being the predominant protein found in milk. Other causes of type 1 or potential causes of type 1 diabetes include susceptibility to certain viruses that can actually trigger the immune system to start attacking its own beta cells. And so as a result of that, until modern medicine gets a full grip on exactly what causes type 1 and 1.5, we can't say as a community that we can you know, stop its progression. What you can do is you can slow down the rate at which it progresses. 
and you can eat yourself into a very insulin sensitive state such that you minimize your risk for other complications like we talked about earlier, neuropathy, retinopathy, kidney failure, blindness, limb amputation, heart disease, vascular damage, you name it. So the goal really with type 1 and 1.5 is to have the cleanest, most top-notch, high-functioning blood vessels, muscle, and liver imaginable. And when you're in that situation, then your risk for complications from diabetes goes way down. And that's what really makes this process so fun. Yeah, because people will lose a limb or a, a foot or something from poor circulation from diabetes. So that doesn't have to be a reality then. Not even close. Does not have to be a reality. Yeah, it's under your control. And again, if you're eating just to control your insulin use and minimize that insulin use, then don't be surprised if 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you end up with other metabolic problems. But if you're eating for top-notch insulin sensitivity, then your chances of developing those other satellite problems goes way down. Okay, so I want to ask about exercise now because exercise is also part of lifestyle. So how does exercise help with diabetes? Yeah, exercise is another very, very, very powerful insulin sensitizer. So there's a way to think about, you know, there's multiple ways to think about exercise because as you know, it is incredibly powerful. I mean, there's, you could do a hundred podcasts on the effects of exercise on your <laughs> brain, on your thyroid gland, on your heart, on your, you know, on your liver, your muscles, you name it. But suffice it to say, for diabetes, developing a consistent exercise regimen, it does not have to be high intensity, it does not have to be super, you know, it doesn't have to be two hours a day. It's literally just 30 to 45 minutes per day of consistent movement does wonders for improving your blood glucose and reversing insulin resistance. And the simple way that it does that is that when you move your body, you end up giving your muscles and liver an incentive or a reason to start burning the fuel that they already have stored inside of them. And if that fuel happens to be mainly triglyceride because you've been eating a high fat diet over the course of time, then great. Your muscles and liver are now going to have the opportunity to start oxidizing or burning those fuels. So a little bit gets burned today and then a little bit more tomorrow and then a little bit more tomorrow and so on and so forth. And over the course of weeks, months, years, you end up getting rid of those triglyceride stores, not getting rid, but significantly reducing the size of those triglyceride stores, which has an insulin sensitizing effect. Because anytime you can limit the amount of fat that's stored inside of your muscle and liver, then you limit the amount of insulin resistance that's present. And then in addition to that, your blood vessels actually become much more malleable and much more permissive of glucose and insulin to be able to get into and outside of your blood. So a simple way that I like to think about this is imagine you had a garden hose, okay, and you connected your garden hose to a spigot on one side, and then you took that garden hose and you ran it 50 feet to go water some flowers on the other side, okay? If you turn on that, that garden hose, and there's no holes in the garden hose, then water's going to flow all the way through the hose, and then it's going to come out the other end. So the hose is doing exactly what it's designed to do. But if you instead took you know, a pair of scissors and you made little slits inside of the garden hose at various points, or you took a pin and you started poking holes all along the way, then the next time you turn on that water, now you're going to have a bunch of, of water that's kind of coming out from the sides of the hose. So it's still going to come out the end, but you're going to end up leaking water all along the way. Okay. 
in that second scenario, what's happening is that your blood vessel, so if we use your blood vessels as sort of like a surrogate for this, your blood vessels all throughout your body, what they're trying to do is allow the glucose and insulin that's inside of your blood to be able to gain access to tissues. And so if that glucose and insulin is trapped inside of your blood vessels and they cannot easily allow the nutrients inside of them to, to communicate with tissues, then you have a problem. So what ends up happening is that blood vessels become what's called permeable to insulin and permeable to glucose, which means that insulin and glucose can get outside of your blood vessels and it can go and talk to cells that are inside your muscle and inside of your liver. And that's a good thing. And so as soon as your blood vessels have the ability to do that, then insulin and glucose become more effective, period. So exercise helps enable that process and it keeps your blood vessels nice and malleable so that insulin and glucose can freely get in and get out of those blood vessels. And in so doing, tissues become happier and your blood glucose goes down over time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think it's an important point to make though, that exercise alone isn't enough. Like you can't, no matter like what your condition is, whether you don't have any chronic diseases, like you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet, like just period. No question about that. I'm glad you brought that up actually, because a lot of people believe that oh, I got diagnosed with diabetes, I just got to go to the gym some more. And that's not true. Yeah. Or like even just in general for weight loss, people say to me, oh, wow, like you ride your bike so many hours, you probably get to eat whatever you want and you don't gain weight and you stay healthy. And it's interesting, like for me personally, if I'm doing like a heavy training week, like a 20 hour training week, which I don't do that often, I still can't eat whatever the heck I want. Like if I eat tons of high fat foods, I'm going to gain weight, even exercising 20 hours a week. So I think that that's something that people need to keep in mind is that it's your diet. Like go to your diet first for everything, exercise second. Would you agree with that statement? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's no question about it because, you know, just like we talked about earlier, you can eat a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet and you can lose weight and you can, you know, trick yourself into believing that, that you're getting healthier over time, right? But the problem is that if you're exercising, you can also get to that same point where you're, you know, you're losing weight and you're tricking yourself into believing that you're actually improving your health from the inside. But without knowing it, you're actually, you know, worsening your metabolic health and that's going to lead to problems down the road. So just like you, we tell people start with your food because your food is the most important variable. And once you really figure out how to start eating more plants, how to drop your fat intake, and how to eat whole foods that don't live in packages and bottles and cans, that's when the true magic of plant-based nutrition really comes around. And then if you want to add exercise on top of that, go for it. It's only going to help. So what does your coaching program entail? Like your website is masteringdiabetes.org. And I see that there is a button that says start here. So like say somebody's listening to this and say they have diabetes or somebody close to them has diabetes and they, they think, oh, like I want to give this a try or I want so-and-so to give this a try. What's the process? What, what should they expect after they visit your website and talk to you guys? Yeah. Thanks for asking. We have a very robust coaching program that we are super proud of. So in our program, we work with people of all types of diabetes, whether it's pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, type 1, type 1.5, all flavors are welcome in our coaching program. We currently have all flavors in our program and love helping everybody. So we offer three different tools in our program, and we have gone out of our way to make it very affordable. So our entire coaching program is a $29 a month subscription. And with that price, people are getting, first tool is an online course. So in this online course, 
It is designed to take people step-by-step through the process of transitioning to a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet while living with diabetes. So there's all these nuanced points that apply to people living with diabetes and you know what your blood glucose should be, what's okay, what's an okay range, what should you expect when you're changing your breakfast, you know, what certain foods are important to avoid, which ones are, are like the best ones to start out with in the transition phase. And all those nuances. And then if people are living with insulin-dependent diabetes, whether that's type 2 or type 1, type 1.5, there's insulin dosing considerations and insulin timing and all this stuff that we address in the online course. So it's designed to make sure it's not overwhelming. So it's a step-by-step process. You just do one step at a time, one bite at a time, and it's very manageable. We're all about long-term success not trying to speed it up, get rapid results, and then you know people fail long-term. So it's a slow and steady process designed specifically to not be overwhelming. So that's the online course. Then the second tool we provide is, right now we have a private Facebook group. And this is where people can ask questions and we, they get an answer within 24 hours. So we're designed to be there with you every step of the way. So anytime you have questions, we are there to help you understand what's going on, how to navigate any struggles. People are sharing their success in there. You see pictures of people eating meals. They're sharing the decision tree, which is a specific logbook that we have, and our coaches can analyze it and help them make changes. People are sharing recipes, talking about how to order restaurants. It's a really vibrant community. And people are also sharing their struggles in there. Hey, you know, I had a bad day. I tried my best, and this is what happened. And getting some support and empathy in there. It's just a really kind, supportive community. It's private. So when people post on there, only people in the group can see it. And we have a lot of fun in there. So we have a registered nurse, Cyrus's wife, Kylie Buckner is in there coaching. We have two people who have reversed type 2 diabetes, Adam Sud and Mark Ramirez. They're in there coaching every day. And then Cyrus and I are also coaching and answering questions. So the Facebook group is really a great tool. And then the third tool we offer in our monthly subscription service is live Q&A calls. So the first and third Sunday of every month, we do a live video Q&A call. So people can see us, and if they turn their camera on, we can see them. We look each other eye to eye, and we have a conversation about whatever's going on, what questions they have, what challenges they have, and we address them. So on those calls, you know, people come and they just listen and learn a lot, and it's really fun. So inside our Facebook group, we also do some live calls in there as well. Q&As on certain topics. People do intermittent fasting together, group intermittent fasting, and we have recipes going on in there. So it's a lot and it's really our passion. We are super, you know, we call ourselves diabetes nutrition and fitness coaches and that's what we do through this coaching program. That's awesome because a lot of times you'll hear, oh, like eat a plant-based diet, but then people don't know where to start or where to turn to. And especially whenever you have something like diabetes, like people, you don't want to mess that up. So having a coach and a group and all of those things where you don't feel alone and you have access to experts all the time is super helpful. That's exactly right. And I mean, that's the main reason I I left Forks Over Knives. I was having so much fun there and all kinds of great things are happening with that company and would love to have stayed and grown with it. But what we created here at Master Diabetes is something that just genuinely did not exist. If you are living with diabetes and you want to start following this low-fat plant-based whole food diet that we're hearing about all over the place, if you wanted support and help in doing that, 
there was nobody to be there with you on a step-by-step basis for an affordable price. You know, at Forks and Knives, we were publishing great testimonials, great articles, lots of great resources. But there still is so many questions that people have even beyond just those articles and resources. So we're really proud about what we're offering. Awesome. Well, I have two last questions to ask you. Um, one of them is, is just a personal question because I, I saw on your website you have green light, yellow light, and red light foods. And I saw that soy products are a yellow light food. So can you tell me why? Yeah. The reason we have soy in the yellow light category, so just so the audience knows, green light are foods that you can eat an unlimited amount, essentially. Like, of course, there's an exception to that. You could stuff yourself. But in general, you get to eat <laughs> as much as you want of the foods in the green light category. That's fruits, that's starchy vegetables, intact whole grains and, and beans and legumes and, and peas. And then obviously, you know, leafy greens are in there, non-starchy vegetables, herbs and spices. Eat as much as you want of those. The yellow light category, these are plant-based foods that are healthy, can still be a part of people's diet. But we're just saying be careful with these foods because they can be problematic when you're trying to reverse insulin resistance. So soy, all soy products, even the most whole form, which is edamame, is a high-fat food. So Mm. it's about 40% of calories coming from fat. We teach people to eat no more than 30 grams of total fat per day to optimize their insulin sensitivity. So if you start having, you know, a large meal of a soy product, you're going to you're going to quickly approach those 30 grams. You just have to be careful with those. Again, if somebody's going to have soy, we are very, you know, big promoters of eating foods in their whole original form. So we would encourage people to have edamame. Tofu is is processed. It's a very processed food. Hmm. And what about legumes? Yeah. We are pro-legume. We love them. Absolutely love them. So that's all beans, all lentils, all peas. There's this, in the the ketogenic and low-carbohydrate world, has launched an anti-legume campaign. And uh, (laughs) they are trying to do everything in their power, and I still don't really understand why, to convince people that the lectins that that are found inside of legumes they're inflammatory and they're going to create leaky gut syndrome and you're going to end up with uh, more intestinal problems that can then become metabolic disorders over the course of time. Unfortunately, while this is like a pretty exciting and sort of like new area of research, it's just not true because if you look at the peer-reviewed evidence-based research dating back to, you know, that, that have studied civilizations that have been eating legumes for long periods of time, what you'll find is not only are legumes safe, but they're actually one of the most nutrient-dense food groups in existence. The total quantity of vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals that you get when you're consuming legumes is unparalleled. And especially for people living with diabetes, eating legumes are a phenomenal way to not only prevent or reverse insulin resistance, but also stay full get a a decent amount of protein, get a decent amount of carbohydrate and make sure that it's coming in a low fat environment. Awesome. Even some of the highest fat and the bean calories, like chickpeas, chickpeas are like are 13.2% of calories coming from fat. So they're perfect for maximizing insulin sensitivity. Cool. And you eat a lot of uh, legumes yourself. I'm curious. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to add in as much as possible. I get between two and three servings a day. 
I actually really like to make. Chef AJ has a book called Unprocessed, and there's this really good holy moly bean dip in there, and it's so freaking good. So we have that all the time. Like it's always in our right. fridge. <laughs> it's a Absolutely. really easy way to get beans. That's awesome. Um, so I want to ask you guys about the diabetic athlete. Is there anything in particular that a diabetic athlete on a whole foods plant-based diet needs to look out for or special advice that you give for them? Yes, I'll speak to this one. I've been an athlete my whole life. Uh, you know, I started playing soccer when I was five years old, running, hiking, biking, swimming, you name it. By the time I was in high school, I was playing soccer, continue to play soccer now, CrossFit, you name it. So athletics are something that not only I have done my whole life, but also studied academically. And um, a lot of people in the world of diabetes fall into this trap. Again, they're, they're in this like carbohydrates are bad for me trap. Carbohydrates are bad for me. Insulin's bad for me. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so as a result of that, they end up gravitating to more you know, fat-rich foods like we've talked about a thousand times. But also, it's easy to read information on the internet that says that, oh, when you're doing endurance-based sports, that your primary fuel utilization comes from fatty acids. And... And so that reinforces this concept that, oh, okay, not only are carbs bad for me, but if I were to eat more fatty acids, that's actually going to help me in performing athletics. And I'm going to become better and I'm going to recover quicker and I'm going I'm to perform better. So my general advice here is that just like you said earlier, Sonia, number one, you cannot out-exercise a bad diet. Okay, and You cannot out-exercise a high-fat diet is what I will say. That's number one. Number two – Carbohydrates are your, your muscle and your liver store carbohydrate as glycogen and glycogen is this like rocket fuel. So if you have a sufficient amount of glycogen stored inside of your muscles and your liver, when you go to perform exercise, you will find more readily available energy. And Sonia, you tell me if you've experienced this as well. It takes a lot longer for you to balk. You know, you might not run out of fuel after 45 minutes. It might take you two hours or three hours to, to run out of fuel. Well, I constantly have to be refueling while I'm exercising, but I definitely eat a high carb diet. Yeah, you eat a high carb diet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you've experienced that from the endurance side. And then the one thing that I think doesn't necessarily get as much attention is not necessarily what's happening during exercise, but what's happening after exercise. And a plant-based diet, especially a low fat plant-based diet, is the number one most effective nutrient delivery mechanism that we know of. So after exercise, your muscles are in a state of, you know, they're hungry. They're hungry for fuel. They're hungry for nutrients. They need vitamins. They need minerals. They need antioxidants. They need to repair themselves, stitch them back together, lay down new protein, manufacture new connective tissue. And so all of those processes are like very biologically expensive processes. They take a lot of horsepower in order to make them work. So it makes sense that the more nutrient-dense your diet is, the, the greater your chances of repairing that mechanical damage and refueling your tissue and refueling your muscles. So a plant-based diet, because it's so high in vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals, gives you the best chance of recovering completely and recovering quickly from demanding exercise. And so... It's very important to understand that like, if you can recover quicker, you're probably going to perform more exercise and it's going to keep you less injury prone and it's going to make the whole experience of exercising flat out more fun and more achievable. Yeah. And I also think that one point that we haven't said that we should make is that we do need fat. Like we don't need excess fat, but 
and you can tell me if this percentage is right, but 15 to 20% of our diet from fat is important because you need that for hormone synthesis and other things in your body, but we need some fat, right? Yeah, hundred percent. People always think like, oh, this is, these are the no fat guys. In reality, you can't eat a no fat guy. <laughs> We're not advocating no fat. That is absolutely, that's impossible. What we suggest people do is uh, eat approximately between 10 and 15% of their diet in fat. So it's basically a 70-15-15 ratio is what we like to target people at. And that's for 70, di diabetics? That's for people with diabetes, yep. exactly. Now, it is a true statement that as you increase your volume of exercise with more time, more intensity, uh, longer duration, that your ability to consume more fatty acids goes up over time. There's no question about that. So if you're hyperactive and you're you know, exercising frequently, then moving towards you know, 15 to 20% is probably likely gonna not affect your insulin resistance. But for the majority of the diabetic population who isn't performing exercise like you, Sonia, then sticking between 10 and 15% is gonna lead to a better outcome. Awesome. Is there anything else you guys wanna add? Like I know you have a podcast and you guys have done, are you on like episode 20 or around there? It's a great question. I don't even know what episode. Yeah, we, we are around episode 20 ish. Yes. And we love the podcast. It's super fun. So people want to find us there. It's called Mastering Diabetes Audio Experience. It's on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud. It's on Stitcher. And is it specifically about diabetes like every episode? Yes. The content we produce is designed for people living with diabetes. No question about it. Cool. So we share testimonials on there, people that have whether type 1 testimonials, type 1.5, type 2 testimonials. We have some science in there about the reason that this program works, and we have some tips on the podcast. So it's really about useful, practical information. We really want people to apply this and see the results. Great. So is MasteringDiabetes.org the best place for people to get a hold of you? Yes, absolutely. And then in the upper right corner, they can click the start here button and get a free guide, insulin sensitivity guide. It's called the Crash Course on Insulin Sensitivity. It's a great PDF full of lots of information and a lot of the sources that Cyrus referenced earlier. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, you guys. This is so great. And I think this is really important information. And also, this is awesome that people now know where they can go to get help whenever they have diabetes and they want to consider changing their diet. Thank you so much, so much for the opportunity to be here today, Sonia. We really appreciate it. Those guys are just brilliant. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I hope that you learned a lot. And I hope that you share this with your friends who have diabetes or maybe you have diabetes as well. Their program is inexpensive and it makes a huge impact. So definitely check out masteringdiabetes.org. If you're enjoying the podcast, I have a Patreon page. It's a place where you can financially support the growth of the show and support my work. And thank you so much to those of you who have been on there. It makes a huge difference. Even as little as four bucks a month, that's the price of a coffee, makes a big difference in the growth and sustainability of the show. I've been doing it for a year now, and there's definitely some costs associated with putting out a podcast, but I do it because I love it. It's definitely a labor of love, and any support is greatly appreciated. Another way you can support the show is just to share it with your friends. Word of mouth is powerful. So if somebody's asking what podcast they should listen to, or maybe somebody's never even heard of a podcast, 
tell them about my show. It really helps a lot. And even screenshotting and posting on social media helps. And I personally love seeing those as well and seeing your guys' personal stories of how the show has helped you in your life. And one last shout out to Kuat Racks. They make the best bike racks, in my opinion, on the circuit. I've tried out a bunch of different kinds and I really appreciate their support of the show. Go to kuatracks.com and check out their awesome racks. That's it for today's show. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>